Psalm 133, a song of ascents, has already been referenced a number of times this weekend. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountain of Zion. For there the Lord commanded blessing, life forevermore. Where can I find a place like that? Where can I find a place like that? With brethren that dwell together in unity. Brethren, a, a tie, a close familial bond, uh, something that's, that's not subject to division and not subject to separation based upon external circumstances. Where can I find a place like that? Where can I find a place that gives me a good answer or gives me something that transcends and rises above an argument or a discussion or a knockdown drag out about things like COVID or things like race? Or things like politics, or things like economics, or things like, like whatever it is that you want to fill in your blank. Where can I find a place that's good and pleasant like what the psalmist describes here? You see, there's a lot of people in our world who are asking that more and more. Is there any respite from the difficulties and from the turmoil? And I could turn on my TV, I could scroll through social media, and all it is is just bad, 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 bad. Where can I find a place that's blessed? Where can I find a place that's good and pleasant where the Lord has commanded blessing? Sadly, there's a lot of members of the church who are asking Where can I find a place like what's pictured here in Psalm 133? Folks, the church ought to be something that transcends the issues that are created by this life. The church ought to be a place where we can go and where we can know, even though we may not see eye to eye about things like COVID or politics or race relations or, or economics or anything that our world has thrown at us, that we know that there are people there that love us And that want us to go to heaven because we know that our hope doesn't lie here in this world. We know the fact that we're just uh, pilgrims here, wayfaring strangers as we sang last night. This world is not our home as we sang tonight. And we understand that that, that if we find a place like that, it ought to be that we're the dearest people on this earth to each other. As Cody mentioned, we're talking about growing together, of course, this weekend, but the focus this evening is on unity because the more and more our world gets dark, the more and more darkness that prevails the earth, the more it ought to be that God's people stand out and shine the way God wants them to, and the more it ought to be that people can come into our assemblies that can see the love that exists here, they can feel the love there, and they can say how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell in unity. Speaking this evening about unity, let me give you a couple of reasons as we get started this evening about why it is that we ought to seek unity. Why is this important that we ought to think about having a God-blessed togetherness because we have a Christ-like focus? Why is it that we ought to think closely about unity? One of the first reasons I thought of as I was making this list is because the New Testament demands it. Even though you find, even before the the New Testament goes into effect, before the day of Pentecost fully comes, you find that even the disciples that followed Jesus struggled with the issue of unity. You think back to Mark chapter 8 and verse 31. 
You remember that about that time, Mark records that Jesus began to say that he was going to Jerusalem and he was going to suffer at the hand of the chief priest and, and he was going to be killed and then he was going to raise the third day. There in Mark 8, verse 31, in the very next verse, you find Peter pulling Jesus aside and, well, Matthew would record, never, Lord, shall you do this. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. And Jesus rebukes Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your uh, mind on things of God, but on things of men. That tells me when my purpose is not the Lord's purpose, I'm setting my mind too much here on this things of this life. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. The next pace, Mark chapter 9, verse 31. Jesus tells him basically the same statement. I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer at the hands of sinful men, and I'm going to die, but I'm going to be raised on the third day. And they're on a journey, and when they get to the place they were going, Jesus turns and he asks his disciples, what was it you were arguing about on the road? You know what they were arguing about was, which one of us is the greatest? Who's the greatest apostle? Who's the greatest follower? Who's the one that's, that's in Jesus' favor the most? And Jesus uses an object lesson, a child. He takes him and places him in his midst and essentially says, unless you be converted and become like this little child, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. There's something about humility there, about following Jesus and maintaining unity. That tells me that based upon what the master taught on that occasion. You get to Mark chapter 10, very next chapter. And Jesus says something similar, that he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer at the hands of sinful men, he's going to die, he's going to be raised the third day. But then we find James and John, in verse 35, taking their mother, Jesus' aunt, and pulling her, and uh, uh, Matthew would record that, and pulling her over, and James and John coming to Jesus and say, Lord, we want you to do whatever we say. Can you grant that one of us can sit on your right hand, one of us can sit on your left hand? And you remember that in verse 41 of that occasion, that the other ten became indignant. They were upset, particularly, it seems, because they beat him to the punch. They were going to ask for the same thing. And Jesus on that occasion, verse 45, says, The Son of Man, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, a testimony to his mission, but also an example for what's going to create unity among his people. The New Testament demands it. Acts chapter 2. What's the difference between those disciples, as selfish as they were, as divisive as they were, as self-seeking as they possibly were before Jesus died? In Acts chapter 2, where it says, when the day of Pentecost fully came, they were all with one accord and in one place. I'm thinking back to Acts chapter 1. We've got to replace Judas. And you remember there were 120 disciples there upon that occasion. Can you imagine the posturing that might have gone on? Can you imagine the divisions that might have been created based upon who wants this guy and who wants this guy? And you don't find that. What made the difference? Spoiler alert, it was the cross of Jesus. It was the mission of Jesus. But as those disciples preached upon the day of Pentecost, you remember that there were about 3,000 who obeyed the gospel on that occasion. And verse 46 says that they were all with one accord. They were all there daily in the temple, uh, breaking bread and, and from, uh, uh, from house to house. And you remember that that was a unity there that was created based upon them focusing on the work of Jesus. You get to Acts chapter 4. There's persecution that now arises amongst the church. Can you imagine Satan and his bag of tricks pulling out the persecution of, of God's people and beginning to persecute these people? And Peter and the other apostles knew that this was going to come. And what they did was they took that to the Lord. They prayed for boldness. And you remember the, the result. 
Acts 4, verse 32, they were all with one heart. They were all with one mind. It made a difference. The cross of Jesus made a difference versus their division, versus their unity. Acts chapter 15, you remember that when they had some Judaizing teachers, some were trying to teach that that the Gentiles need to be circumcised. They came together in a Jerusalem meeting and they began to discuss. And they began to talk about those things, but by the Spirit of God, they made the choice. And the Bible says, as one man said, It was a miracle that occurred on that occasion, Acts 15 and verse 22. The saying pleased the apostles and the elders and the whole church. When was the last time a decision was reached that pleased everybody in every place in the entire church? A miracle occurred on that occasion. If we were to go to the doctrinal section of the New Testament, just opening up the page of the New Testament, we could open up to the passage of 1 Corinthians. We could look at Ephesians chapter 4. There are a number of great doctrinal unity passages of our New Testament. It absolutely demands it. Why are we talking about unity this evening? Is because the Lord takes seriously the assaults of, on the unity of his people. Church, we better think deeply about 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17. If any man defiles the temple of God in the context of division, if any man defiles the temple of God, God will destroy that man because the temple of God is holy, which temple... I learned this from Brother Brumback. Paul should have been an East Texan. Which temple y'all are? Y'all is a perfectly acceptable Greek word. I learned that again. You can take that up with him. We are... (laughs) Thank you, Brother. Appreciate it. We are the temple of God. And we better be careful about how we treat the body of Christ, how we treat the temple of God. Ananias and Sapphira, Acts 4, verse 32, we mentioned that they were of one heart and they were of one soul. And you remember that Joseph called Barnabas came and laid, uh, sold it a possession and laid down the, the money at the apostles' feet. In the very next chapter, you find Ananias and Sapphira doing something similar, only their motive was greed. Their motive seems like it was prominence. How, can, how many ba- pats on the back can we get because of this? And God dealt very severely with them based upon the fact that that was an assault upon the unity of his people. Number three, why should we talk about unity this evening? It's because when God's people are one, we become like the God we serve. Think about that just for a moment. Moses, in preaching his last sermon before it was that the people of Israel were going to go into the promised land and Moses was going to die on Mount Nebo. You remember that he made that grand declaration there in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Jesus prayed for his disciples, for all of us in John 17, and he prayed, Lord, let them be one. Jesus was interested in unity, and particularly, folks, because the God that we serve is one, and when God's people are one, we become like the God we serve. God commands us to do things because it's in his very nature. Why does he want us to be loving? Why does he want to be forgiving? Why does he want us to be kind? Why does he want us to be tender-hearted towards one another? It's because those things are marks of his character. And the more we think about how God is one, the more it may ought to make us desire to be one as a body, as the church, as a brotherhood. Why are we talking about unity? It's because we're never going to shine as God wants us to shine if unity, if our unity as the church is not what it ought to be. Folks, I want you to understand this. The issues that have been created in the past 20 years, not to mention the last year and a half or so of our history, 
Those things our world doesn't have a good answer for. And those things, the more they go on, you know what's going to happen? I believe we have every reason as the church to be optimistic about the future for the church and the future for God's people. As Americans, that's a different story. But as far as the church goes and as far as the future of the church, we have every reason to be optimistic. You know why? Because the denominations don't have a good answer for what's going on right now. Because the denominations, the more that this goes on and the more separation that occurs and the more division that occurs based upon things like what the Southern Baptists are dealing with or what this denomination is dealing with, the more people are going to look for the place of what's described here in Psalm 133 where brethren dwell in harmony. How good and how pleasant it is. We've got a mega church right down the road from where we preach, or where I preach rather, in Rosenberg, where we work in Rosenberg. And you know what? We've had some people that have specifically left that megachurch and have come down the road and have, well, they've, through the process of, of studying, they've obeyed the gospel. You know why? Because that megachurch was already impersonal. They'd gone there for years and they'd never realized or they realized that they didn't know anybody there. But you know what? As COVID has progressed and as they've had to go to virtual services... Now it becomes even more impersonal. And now as they require masks to go into the service and come out of the service, the less people are, 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 are challenged to engage somebody else and to talk to them about, uh, about Jesus and about what's going on. And they come down the road to us. And they said, we've never seen a place with people as loving and as kind. And we want to know more about God that you serve. People are starving for a place that's a God-honoring togetherness because we have a Christ-like focus. And we have more of an opportunity today, despite how horrible you think 2020 was or how, how horrible 2021 may, th- you may feel like it's shaping up to be, we have more of an opportunity as the church today to reach those people that are starving and looking for something that transcends all of the horrible answers that our world has given them about, about God. And about how to handle COVID or cold or politics or racial division or those things. We have an opportunity to show them something entirely different. Because it's a God-honoring focus. Or God-honoring togetherness with a Christ-like focus. Would you turn to your Bibles, please, this evening to Philippians. I'd like to spend the rest of our time there in talking about unity. Book of Philippians, I must be dense. Well, that's... Let me back up. I am dense. I knew all of my Christian study that Philippians is a book about Christian joy. You go through the pages and you're going to come across joy, 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 rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. I rejoice in this. I rejoice in that. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Absolutely. There were several years ago, I was sitting in a class and I discovered, I discovered it was already there. The book of Philippians is about having one mind. It's about having one mind because you're going to come across that again and again and again. And then I discovered another thing that that, uh, Mike Vestal brought out one year. He said there's 104 verses in the book of Philippians and 52 of them have to do and have Christ somewhere in them. That's half. Exactly half. And I never put it all together and said Philippians is one of the best books to talk about Christian unity because of those things. Because of one mind in Christ, 
that brings us joy because of everybody working together for the gospel's sake. Let me give you three points, one from each chapter. Foundations, if you like, of unity, hallmarks of unity that ought to be present in God's people. Things that Paul emphasizes in each one of these chapters and see if it doesn't make sense at the very end. Number one, why is it that we should be uh, unified, rather? It's because we're centered in the gospel. Centered in the gospel. The word gospel is one of those words that absolutely occurs all the way through, but especially in chapter one. Note these or mark them in your Bible, and I think that you'll find it to be uh, telling. Chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul talking about the Philippians and saying this, For your fellowship, I'm grateful. I thank God, verse 3. I thank God for your fellowship and the gospel from the first day until now. They spent time working with Paul in the gospel. Verse 7, Paul says, Just as it's right for me to think of this in you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both my chains are in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are, are still, again, fellowship, partakers of me of grace or with me of grace defense of the gospel look down at verse 12 i want you to know brethren the things that have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel we'll come and talk back and talk about that here in just a moment paul says i'm in prison this is one of those prison epistles i'm there i've already appeared before caesar once it seems like or at least spent time in his household based upon something he says down at the very end of the chapter or the end of the book rather But we know that Paul says, this is why I'm here. This is what I'm doing. And it's actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Verse 27, down at the end of the chapter. Paul says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind. Here's the next one, striving for the faith of the gospel. Every single one of those emphases on the gospel, and on how the Philippians had helped Paul and how they'd worked with Paul is about what's really important about our Christian faith. Folks, it's a challenge for the church in every age to keep the main thing the main thing. We may try and get sidetracked. There may be things that come up and we may look at different circumstances or different situations and say, well, we need to divert our focus and change to these things over here. We need to keep centered on the gospel. Elders, preachers, one of the best things you can do for a local church is to remind people that we're not interested in compromise. We're interested in standing up for the gospel and we're interested in seeing that the gospel goes forward no matter what. Look at the third one again. The furtherance of the gospel. Has the church where you are crafted a plan for evangelizing in the age of COVID? Has the church where you are advanced a plan for fellowshipping in the age of COVID? Has the church where you are crafted a plan for benevolence in the age of COVID? Because these are things that we absolutely ought to be focusing on and thinking about. We wring our hands sometimes and think, oh no, what in the world are we going to be able to do? We can't go and knock on somebody's door anymore because they're going to look at us and say, don't you know that we're supposed to be social distancing? Church, adapt and overcome. Again, don't compromise the gospel, but realize that now is the time that we can look at our lives and be creative. How could Paul say, can you imagine Paul sitting there in that Roman jail cell going, "Ah, I'm here, I'm chained to this guard, I've been here for years now, I don't know what's going to happen. 
If only I was on the outside, I could do more. If only situations was different. If only I had been maybe not in Jerusalem on the day that, that I was going to pay that, fee, that, 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 that vow. If only things were changed, then we could evangelize the way we wanted to. Listen. People talk about the new normal. God says, I want to know what you're going to do with the gospel and the normal that you have. Are we centered as a church on the gospel of Christ and upon the furtherance of the gospel in reaching those people with all those questions and saying, is there really a place? Is there really a place where somebody's going to love me just for being me? Is there really a place for somebody that's going to look and, and say, there's a soul that's valuable in the eyes of God, and where can I find such a place? Centered in the gospel. Number two, from chapter two. We're unified as we are people who have, hold, and honor the mind of Christ. We have, hold, and we honor the mind of Christ. Simple outline of chapter 2. You have the goal. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. There's one of the key phrases of the book of Philippians. Having the same love of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each man esteem others better than himself. Let each of you not only look out for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Folks, that is a grand challenge that Paul issues here in Philippians to say, here's something that you need to do. Don't let old self rule how you deal with other people. But you in humility, with humility of mind, you esteem, you lift them up, you treat them as better than yourself. You want a challenge that's going to last you for the rest of your life. Memorize, take to heart Philippians 2, 1 through 4 and see if that doesn't challenge you to your very core. And then he gives the ideal in verses 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider himself to be robbery with equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. He humbled himself. And he humbled himself to the point of death. Even the death on the cross. Why did Jesus do that? Because he was esteeming others better than himself. He was seeing the need that you and I had that we couldn't provide for ourselves, and he was working to meet that need. And I love the way it ends, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on the earth, and those under the earth, and every tongue should confess, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. If Philippians 2, reading verses 5 through 11, doesn't inspire you to worship, if it doesn't inspire you to think about the greatness of God, I would invite you to go back and read the entirety again and again and again. Because he's the ideal. He's the one we're ultimately following. And if he could have that kind of humility, what kind of humility should we have as his disciples? With one mind, thinking of others and esteeming them better than ourselves. The challenge, verses 12 through 15 or 16 rather, the challenge, right on the heels of what God did through Jesus, through his humility, he says, I want you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And we just stop there. But you look on at the, at the context, verse 13, 
For it's God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, self, what is that verse? What do those two verses have to do with what he's just said? Was God trying to accomplish something through Jesus? You can nod your head. He was. Is God trying to accomplish something through you and through me? You can nod your head, yes. How is he going to do that? He's going to do that when we have a humility that models what Jesus did. The ideal. And if that's not enough, he's going to go on. In fact, another lifelong challenge is verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Why? Because Jesus did. And he's our model. He's the one that we're trying to uphold, and he's the ideal. Another lifelong challenge. Do all things without complaining and disputing. As if that weren't enough, Paul gives three living examples. He starts with himself there in verse 17. And say, if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. For the same reason, I also want you to be glad and rejoice with me. He then goes on and talks about Timothy, about how he sent Timothy. And he had no one like-minded like Timothy that would sincerely care for them. Like the ideal, like Jesus, verses 5 through 11. And then he goes on and talks about Epaphroditus and how Epaphroditus was sick and how the Philippians cared for him and how they took care of him, but how he was still willing to minister to them, even in difficult circumstances. Keep the main thing the main thing, but folks, remember our mindset, the way we think about our Savior Jesus, and what we think about one another is going to say a lot about what we think about our Savior Jesus and what he did at the cross. We have, we hold, we honor the mind of Christ. That is a pillar, a mark, a foundation of unity of God's people. Number three from chapter three. From chapter 3, we turn from the past to move forward to our glorious future. We're going to turn away from the past to move forward to our glorious future. Wish there were better words, or maybe I wish I was better with the words to be able to describe what I had in my mind when when I put this down. But think about this. Paul spends the first several verses talking about where he came from as a Jew. Where he came from in the religious background that he cultivated and that uh, was, was, was a part of his, his upbringing. And you remember that he talked about the past glory that he had experienced. And he goes through and he says, I was a Jew of Jews. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And not just that, but I was a super Hebrew. And all of the things that we want to extol and lift up about the Hebrew faith, Paul says, I was that. But he's going to take those things and he's going to count those things as loss. As loss, as loss. Three times, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, he's going to tell us he turns away from those things so that he may grasp hold, that he may gain Christ. And he does so and he says, I want to do that, verse 8. And then he's going to go forward and talk about how he's progressing as a Christian. And he says, I haven't attained yet, but I'm pressing on. I'm reaching forward. I'm pressing toward. And he said that as many of us that have that mind, let us walk by that mind. Let's walk in that way. We don't extol mountain climbers that only make it up halfway on a peak, do we? Can you imagine spending, and I I have a fascination with Everest. I don't know why, but I just do. And every year that the climbing season comes around, I'm always tuned in to the news about the traffic jams on the way up to Everest. But can you imagine somebody's paying, you know, $65,000 to $100,000 and going up there and saying, yeah, I climbed Everest. Oh, you did. How far did you get? About halfway. 
I turned around and I thought, eh, this is far enough. <laughs> it's okay to appreciate what came before. But realize the fact that there is still a summit to reach. And by the grace of God, every single one of us are on that climb, so to speak. I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day. We sing that song often. And we're moving along and we're moving forward, not regarding the past and not patting ourselves on the back. I know the congregations that get so caught up in saying, you know, we have such a great church here. Let's tell you about everything we've done over the past 10, 15 years. Let's tell you about all the good programs that we've implemented and do those things again. If those things are godly, if they're God-honoring, then there's nothing wrong with that. But there's something to be said for, what are you doing in the future? How are you moving forward? We've got a glorious future, which he's going to talk about at the very end of this, where he says, we're eagerly waiting for this time. Because we're not citizens of this earth. We're not here on a permanent visa. We're going home. We can't get caught looking at the past. We can't get caught up in thinking about in a very nostalgic way about the past, so much so that it petrifies us of the future. You heard the old story about the little boy who was in class and his teacher was teaching him about uh, past and present future tenses. And the teacher said, all right, little Johnny, I'm going to read this sentence. And I want you to tell me if this is past tense, present tense, or future tense. And she said, I am beautiful. Little Johnny kind of looked her up and down. He said, past tense. Past tense. Church, don't get caught up in the past tense. As Mike brought out so very eloquently last night, the best is yet to be for the people of God. And we, as we are reaching together, and as we sing songs about heaven and about our common hope and about our common joy in Christ, that's not just an academic exercise we do. That's not just something we do to kill time because it gives us the hope for tomorrow Something people are so desperately outside looking for and needing. You say, but Andy, there's four chapters. You said there were three points about this. Wayne Jones, uh, I worked with him for about uh, nine years, just short of nine years. And Wayne, just after he got to San Marcos, and I'll never forget this, he and I were standing out of the foyer after he preached a lesson, and uh, there was a dear sister who came out and said, Wayne, I love the way you preach. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, he said he was very humble. He took it well. And uh, she said, you just go along and you preach and preach and preach. And we're just amen and amen and amen. And then all of a sudden you come up in the back and you smack us in the back of the head with the application. (laughs) And he and I kind of laughed about that. But uh, I said, Wayne, you're just coming up behind us and smacking us in the back of the head. I want you to notice something about Philippians. As you get to chapter four, because... All of these concepts, being centered in the gospel, having, holding, and honoring the mind of Christ, and then looking forward to our glorious future. Again, we, yes, yes, amen, amen, amen. But look at what he does in Philippians chapter 4. Here's the pop quiz. Here's the living test for the Philippians. When you get to two ladies there in verse 2 by the name of Euodia and Syntyche. Literally, one of their names means fine traveling, and the other one means an accident. What happens when fine traveling meets an accident? That's kind of describes some of our churches today in the age of COVID, right? What happens when everything's going well and we feel like everything's on course and now all of a sudden, ah, there's a Mike Vestal for you, right? <laughs> Hurt your ears. What happens when that happens? Can you imagine what would happen if Paul came out swinging in this epistle? 
If he said, I, I, I'm writing this to you bishops and deacons, and let me tell you about Euodia and Syntyche, these two ladies, they need to figure out a way to get along. They need to figure out a way to make themselves unified because I'm going to bring down the apostolic hammer. Instead, notice what he appeals to in Philippians chapter 4 and the first couple of verses. Number one, he says, these are ladies who have labored with me in the gospel. What was chapter 1 about? It was about the gospel. He says, these are two ladies who need to be of the same mind. What was chapter 2 about? It was about the mind of Christ. And you say, where's the rest of it? Paul says at the very beginning of verse 1, my beloved, my so longed for brethren, my joy, my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Chapter 3, he has to deal with people who are not walking the way that they ought to towards the end of the verse or towards the end of the chapter. In fact, he says those people are enemies of the cross of Christ, those ones that are walking according to the God which is their belly and the ones that are, that are just feeding their own appetites. Paul could have easily taken these two ladies and grouped them into those people and said, that's it, just write them off. Instead, he takes, and I love verse 4, thought about why verse 4 falls at the end of those first three verses? Because it's almost like Paul is assuming that these ladies are going to work it out. That the church is going to keep on moving forward with the gospel mission and going to continue to being and behaving in Christ-like ways and continuing to be a fellowship that honors God the way that they ought to. And he's able to say, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. The true test for the Philippians was what he said to the people in saying, I implore you, Odie and Syntyche, and I also implore you, true companion, fellow laborer, Sinzagus, you one who is a yoke fellow. We're bonded together. And we have a responsibility to take care of one another and to encourage one another in what's right. Brothers and sisters, a lot of congregations are divided right now because of the situation with COVID. And the question's going to be is, what about those people that haven't returned at all? When is it that we're going to try and help them? And I feel like there are some people that are going to the gym and going to the store and going to all these different places, but they're not coming to worship. What do we do about those people? The answer is not to write those people off, but to appeal to our work in the gospel, appeal to the mind of Christ, and to appeal to our glorious future and to try and help those people through that. Practically, when was the last time you called one of those people that hasn't shown up since last March, last February, and said, brother, sister, we love you, we care about you, we care about your soul, and we want to see you soon. We hope that whatever you're waiting for, whether that be the vaccine or whether that be something else, that, that, that you'll be able to come back into the fellowship. But, by the way, I want you to know, brother, Henry had his surgery last Thursday. And I know that you had a special relationship with Brother Henry. Would you mind picking up the phone and giving him a call? I tell you what he would really appreciate while he's there in the hospital because we can't go see him. We can't, we can't get in the door of the hospital anymore, even as ministers and elders and other people that, that have a desire and a concern. You know what Brother Henry would appreciate? And he would appreciate from you, a person who hasn't been back since March. He'd appreciate a letter or card, something that is encouraging 
And I know you wish you could be out like the rest of us. But if you could send Brother Henry a card and let him know about our common salvation and how good it is that he came through a surgery, all right. Have we found ways to try and engage those people with the mind of Christ and helping them to understand the mind of Christ and have the mind of Christ? And how have we helped engage them to be people who are about the furtherance of the gospel, even though for whatever reason they may be drifting away, as it were, from the gospel? We have that opportunity. Adapt and overcome. And let me show you something else about Philippians chapter 4 as we close. We have a responsibility to invest in our Christian relationships. It's not just people that are sitting on a pew. God forbid that it should ever be that. That if you're one of those folks that gets up immediately after the closing amen and you head out to your car and you never interact with these people, how in the world are you ever going to enjoy heaven? Instead, we need to be sacrificially involved in the lives of others because that's what Jesus did. And he goes over that there in verse 3. We need to be people who are sensible, who are fair-minded, who are gentle. Paul says, let your moderation, in old King James, let your gentleness be made known to all. I don't want to be heavy-handed on one side of an argument or another. I want to be, as a person who's perceived as gentle, reasonable, that somebody can come to me and say, well, well, I don't understand why those people don't want to wear masks. I don't understand why those people can't understand why, why, why uh, race relations are so important. I don't want to be one of those people that... And you can fair-mindedly sensibly with good judgment say i understand you brother but think about it from their perspective let's think about the other side about this you think the church could benefit from more people that had that as opposed to going on social media and blasting in a passive aggressive way i hated that people dot 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 if you're one of those people please stop please repent that's never helped anybody I hate the fact that social media has given us a platform where we feel like our opinion is the most important thing and people who don't agree with us are immediately shut down or defriended or whatever it may be. It's not the place for it, and it's not going to lead to unity. Please stop. Please. We need to be people who pray together about what concerns us. Be anxious for nothing but in everything with prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And we understand that there's a prayer aspect of it personally, but have you thought about it in the context of trying to help a Euodian Asyntyche get along? There in verse 2, it's with the same stroke of the pen. We need to be people who think the best about each other. Whatever is true and noble and just and pure and lovely and good report, if there's anything virtuous, anything praiseworthy, think about those things. That doesn't just have to do with the movies we watch and the music we listen to and the things that we participate in this life. It also has to do with how we think about each other. You want a good commentary on that? Go to 1 Corinthians 13 and read the first seven verses. And think about how God thinks about us and think about each other the same way. Think the best, not the worst. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell in unity, to be people who imitate those who imitate Christ. Paul said the things that you heard and you saw and you, you, you saw me do, he says do those things. Verse 9. Again, for time of paraphrasing, please understand that. But Paul says, imitate me. And can I show you something as we close? That God fills in the blanks. How in the world is that going to create unity? Look at the verses we left out. He provides our joy. He's the one that's going to cause the church to rejoice when we have the attitudes that we ought to. 
God is going to be the one who provides our peace. It's a peace sandwich, verse 7 and verse 9. The peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, verse 7. And the peace of God will be with you, verse 9. Do we need that? Do we desire that? Is the congregation where we are known as a congregation that God has provided joy, God has provided peace, God is going to provide our contentment. Paul finishes up and says, I've learned in everything to be content. People want to know that there's a place like that. God is going to be the one that, lest we belabor the point, verse 19 and 20, provides for our every need. And my God, verse 19, shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Where can we find a place like that? Church, it ought to be with us as the people of God. Because we're committed to growing together in the gospel. Because we're committed to growing together in the mind of Christ. Because we're committed to growing together in thinking about our glorious future and the fact that we can't go backwards, we're going to always go forwards. If you don't have peace, if you don't have joy, if you don't have contentment, if you don't have the relationship with a God who is able to supply all of your needs in such a troubled world as what we live in, with such difficulties as what we faced in the last two years, the last 15 years, whatever, however long you want to go back, our God is the same. Our Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And how we need to trust in him more. Thank you so much for your attention this evening. Maybe there's a soul here this evening that needs the prayers and the encouragement of the church. That's part of us dwelling together in unity. It's because we love each other enough to want to pray for one another and encourage one another and help one another. And we'd love to be able to help you and pray with you and pray for you and encourage you and study with you and, and let you have a shoulder to cry on. Because that's something that the world, that's something that Christians so desperately need. Maybe there's somebody here who recognizes they're outside of Christ, they're lost. It's only through faith, through repentance, through baptism that you can come to know Jesus Christ. Jesus says, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Do you need that this evening? The Lord stands ready to receive you. We stand ready to help you as we stand and sing our invitation song.